Section 2 of The Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Fascio. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter 1. How Tom Brangwen Married a Polish Lady. Part 2. He soon got used to the grammar school, and the grammar school got used to him, setting him down as a hopeless duffer at learning, but respecting him for a generous, honest nature. Only one narrow, domineering fellow, the Latin master, bullied him and made the blue eyes mad with shame and rage. There was a horrid scene. When the boy laid open the master's head with a slate, and then things went on as before. The teacher got little sympathy, but Bronwyn winced and could not bear to think of the deed, not even long after, when he was a grown man. He was glad to leave school. It had not been unpleasant. He had enjoyed the companionship of the other youths, or had thought he enjoyed it. The time had passed very quickly, in endless activity. But he knew all the time that he was in an ignominious position, in this place of learning. He was aware of failure all the while, of incapacity. But he was too healthy and sanguine to be wretched. He was too much alive. Yet his soul was wretched almost to hopelessness. He had loved one warm, clever boy, who was frail in body, a consumptive type. The two had had an almost classic friendship, David and Jonathan, wherein Bronwyn was the Jonathan, the server. But he had never felt equal with his friend, because the other's mind outpaced his, and left him ashamed, far in the rear. So the two boys went at once apart on leaving school, but Bronwyn always remembered his friend that had been, kept him as a sort of light a fine experience to remember. Tom Brangwen was glad to get back to the farm, where he was in his own again. I've got a turnip on my shoulders, let me stick to the fallow, he said to his exasperated mother. He had too low an opinion of himself, but he went about at his work on the farm gladly enough, glad of the active labor and the smell of the land again, having youth and vigor and humor, and a comic wit, having the will and the power to forget his own shortcomings finding himself violent with occasional rages, but usually on good terms with everybody and everything. When he was seventeen, his father fell from a stack and broke his neck. Then the mother and son and daughter lived on at the farm, interrupted by occasional loud-mouthed lamenting, jealous-spirited visitations from the butcher Frank, who had a grievance against the world, which he felt was always giving him less than his dues. Frank was particularly against the young Tom, whom he called a Marty baby, and Tom returned the hatred violently, his face growing red and his blue eyes staring. Effie sided with Tom against Frank. But when Alfred came, from Nottingham, heavy-jowled and lowering, speaking very little, but treating those at home with some contempt, Effie and the mother sided with him and put Tom into the shade. It irritated the youth that his elder brother should be made something of a hero by the women, just because he didn't live at home and was a lace designer and almost a gentleman. But Alfred was something of a Prometheus bound, so the women loved him. Tom came later to understand his brother better. As youngest son, Tom felt some importance when the care of the farm devolved on to him. He was only 18, but he was quite capable of doing everything his father had done. And, of course, his mother remained as center to the house. The young man grew up very fresh and alert, with zest for every moment of life. 
He worked and rode and drove to market. He went out with companions and got tipsy occasionally and played skittles and went to the little traveling theaters. Once, when he was drunk at a public house, he went upstairs with a prostitute who seduced him. He was then nineteen. The thing was something of a shock to him. In the close intimacy of the farm kitchen, the woman occupied the supreme position. The men deferred to her in the house, on all household points, on all points of morality and behavior. The woman was the symbol for that further life which comprised religion and love and morality. The men placed in her hands their own conscience. They said to her, Be my conscience, keeper. Be the angel at the doorway guarding my outgoing and my incoming. And the woman fulfilled her trust. The men rested implicitly in her, receiving her praise or her blame with pleasure or with anger, rebelling and storming but never for a moment really escaping in their own souls from her prerogative. They depended on her for their stability. Without her, they would have felt like straws in the wind, to be blown hither and thither at random. She was the anchor and the security. She was the restraining hand of God, at times highly to be execrated. Now, when Tom Brangwen, at nineteen, a youth fresh like a plant, rooted in his mother and his sister, found that he had lain with a prostitute woman in a common public house. He was very much startled. For him, there was until that time only one kind of woman, his mother and sister. But now, he did not know what to feel. There was a slight wonder, a pang of anger, of disappointment, at first taste of ash and of cold fear lest this was all that would happen, lest his relations with woman were going to be no more than this nothingness, there was a slight sense of shame before the prostitute, fear that she would despise him for his inefficiency. There was a cold distaste for her, and a fear of her. There was a moment of paralyzed horror when he felt he might have taken a disease from her, and upon all this startled tumult of emotion was laid the steadying hand of common sense, which said it did not matter very much, so long as he had no disease. He soon recovered balance, and really, it did not matter so very much. But it had shocked him, and put a mistrust into his heart, and emphasized his fear of what was within himself. He was, however, in a few days going about again in his own careless, happy-go-lucky fashion, his blue eyes just as clear and honest as ever, his face just as fresh, his appetite just as keen. Or apparently so. He had, in fact, lost some of his buoyant confidence, and doubt hindered his outgoing. For some time after this, he was quieter, more conscious when he drank, more backward from companionship. The disillusion of his first carnal contact with woman, strengthened by his innate desire to find in a woman the embodiment of all his inarticulate, powerful religious impulses, put a bit in his mouth. He had something to lose which he was afraid of losing which he was not sure even of possessing. This first affair did not matter much, but the business of love was, at the bottom of his soul, the most serious and terrifying of all to him. He made a strong, instinctive fight to retain his native cheerfulness unimpaired. He had naturally a plentiful stream of life and humor, a sense of sufficiency and exuberance, giving ease, but now it tended to cause tension. A strained light came into his eyes, he had a slight knitting of the brows, 
his boisterous humor gave place to lowering silences, and days passed by in a sort of suspense. He did not know there was any difference in him, exactly. For the most part, he was filled with slow anger and resentment. But he knew he was always thinking of women, or a woman, day in, day out, and that infuriated him. He could not get free, and he was ashamed. He had one or two sweethearts, starting with them in the hopes of speedy development. But when he had a nice girl, he found he was incapable of pushing the desired development. The very presence of the girl beside him made it impossible. He could not think of her like that. He could not think of her actual nakedness. She was a girl, and he liked her, and dreaded violently even the thought of uncovering her. He knew that, in these last issues of nakedness, he did not exist to her, nor she to him. Again, if he had a loose girl, and things began to develop, she offended him so deeply all the time that he never knew whether he was going to get away from her as quickly as possible, or whether he were going to take her out of inflamed necessity. Again he learned his lesson. If he took her, it was a paucity which he was forced to despise. He did not despise himself, nor the girl. But he despised the net result in him of the experience. He despised it deeply and bitterly. Then, when he was twenty-three, his mother died, and he was left at home with Effie. His mother's death was another blow out of the dark. He could not understand it. He knew it was no good his trying. One had to submit to these unforeseen blows that come unawares and leave a bruise that remains and hurts whenever it is touched. He began to be afraid of all that which was up against him. He had loved his mother. After this, Effie and he quarreled fiercely. They meant a very great deal to each other, but they were both under a strange, unnatural tension. He stayed out of the house as much as possible. He got a special corner for himself at the Red Lion at Kasafe, and became a usual figure by the fire, a fresh, fair young fellow with heavy limbs and head held back, mostly silent, though alert and attentive, very hearty in his greeting of everybody he knew, shy of strangers. He teased all the women, who liked him extremely, and he was very attentive to the talk of the men, very respectful. To drink made him quickly flush very red in the face, and brought out the look of self-consciousness and unsureness, almost bewilderment, in his blue eyes. When he came home in this state of tipsy confusion, his sister hated him and abused him, and he went off his head, like a mad bull with rage. He had still another turn with a light o' love. One Whitsuntide he went a jaunt with two other young fellows on horseback to Matlock and thence to Bakewell. Matlock was at that time just becoming a famous beauty spot, visited from Manchester and from the Staffordshire towns. In the hotel where the young men took lunch were two girls, and the parties struck up a friendship. The miss, who made up to Tom Brownwin, then twenty-four years old, was a handsome, reckless girl neglected for an afternoon by the man who had brought her out. She saw Brownwin and liked him, as all women did, for his warmth and his generous nature, and for the innate delicacy in him. But she saw he was one who would have to be brought to the scratch. However, she was roused and unsatisfied and made mischievous 
so she dared anything. It would be an easy interlude, restoring her pride. She was a handsome girl with a bosom, and dark hair and blue eyes, a girl full of easy laughter, flushed from the sun, inclined to wipe her laughing face in a very natural and taking manner. Brangwen was in a state of wonder. He treated her with his chafing deference, roused, but very unsure of himself, afraid to death of being too forward, ashamed lest he might be thought backward, mad with desire, yet restrained by instinctive regard for women from making any definite approach, feeling all the while that his attitude was ridiculous and flushing deep with confusion. She, however, became hard and daring as he became confused. It amused her to see him come on. "'When must you go back?' she asked. "'I'm not particular,' he said. There the conversation again broke down. Brangwen's companions were ready to go on. "'Art coming, Tom,' they called. "'Or art for stoppin'?' "'Aye, I'm comin,' he replied, rising reluctantly, an angry sense of futility and disappointment spreading over him. He met the full, almost taunting look of the girl, and he trembled with unusedness. "'Shall you come and have a look at my mare?' he said to her, with his hearty kindliness that was now shaken with trepidation. "'Oh, I should like to,' she said, rising. And she followed him, his rather sloping shoulders and his cloth-riding gaiters, out of the room. The young men got their own horses out of the stable. "'Can you ride?' Bronwyn asked her. "'I should like to if I could. I have never tried,' she said. "'Come, then, and have a try,' he said. And he lifted her, he blushing, she laughing, into the saddle. "'I shall slip off. It's not a lady's saddle,' she cried. "'Hold your tight,' he said, and he led her out of the hotel gate. The girl sat very insecurely, clinging fast. He put a hand on her waist to support her, and he held her closely. He clasped her as in an embrace. He was weak with desire as he strode beside her. The horse walked by the river. "'You want to sit straddle-leg,' he said to her. "'I know I do,' she said. It was the time of very full skirts. She managed to get astride the horse, quite decently, showing an intent concern for covering her pretty leg. "'It's a lot better, this road,' she said, looking down at him. "'Aye, it is,' he said, feeling the marrow melt in his bones from the look in her eyes. "'I don't know why they have that side-saddle business, twisting a woman in two. "'Should us leave you, then? You seem to be fixed up there.' called Brangwen's companions from the road. He went red with anger. Aye, don't worry, he called back. How long are you stopping? they asked. Not after Christmas, he said, and the girl gave a tinkling peal of laughter. All right, bye-bye, called his friends, and they cantered off, leaving him very flushed, trying to be quite normal with the girl. But presently he had gone back to the hotel and given his horse into the charge of an ostler, and had gone off with the girl into the woods, not quite knowing where he was or what he was doing. His heart thumped, and he thought at the most glorious adventure, and he was mad with desire for the girl.
Afterwards, he glowed with pleasure. By Jove, but that was something like. He stayed the afternoon with the girl and wanted to stay the night. She, however, told him this was impossible. Her own man would be back by dark, and she must be with him. He, Bronwyn, must not let on that there had been anything between them. She gave him an intimate smile, which made him feel confused and gratified. He could not tear himself away, though he had promised not to interfere with the girl. He stayed on at the hotel overnight. He saw the other fellow at the evening meal, a small middle-aged man with iron-gray hair and a curious face, like a monkey's, but interesting, in its way almost beautiful. Bronwyn guessed that he was a foreigner. He was in company with another, an Englishman, dry and hard. The four sat at table, two men and two women. Bronwyn watched with all his eyes. He saw how the foreigner treated the women with curious contempt, as if they were pleasing animals. Bronwyn's girl had put on a ladylike manner, but her voice betrayed her. She wanted to win back her man. When dessert came on, however, the little foreigner turned round from his table and calmly surveyed the room, like one unoccupied. Bronwyn marveled over the cold, animal intelligence of the face. The brown eyes were round, showing all the brown pupil, like a monkey's, and just calmly looking, perceiving the other person without referring to him at all. They rested on Bronwyn. The latter marveled at the old face turned round on him, looking at him without considering it necessary to know him at all. The eyebrows of the round, perceiving but unconcerned eyes were rather high up, with slight wrinkles above them, just as a monkey's had. It was an old, ageless face. The man was most amazingly a gentleman all the time, an aristocrat. Bronwyn stared fascinated. The girl was pushing her crumbs about on the cloth, uneasily, flushed, and angry. As Bronwyn sat motionless in the hall afterwards, too much moved and lost to know what to do, the little stranger came up to him with a beautiful smile and manner, offering a cigarette and saying, Will you smoke? Bronwyn never smoked cigarettes, yet he took the one offered, fumbling painfully with thick fingers, blushing to the roots of his hair. Then he looked with his warm blue eyes at the almost sardonic, lidded eyes of the foreigner. The latter sat down beside him, and they began to talk, chiefly of horses. Bronwyn loved the other man for his exquisite graciousness, for his tact and reserve, for his ageless, monkey-like self-surety. They talked of horses, and of Derbyshire, and of farming. The stranger warmed to the young fellow with real warmth, and Bronwyn was excited. He was transported at meeting this odd, middle-aged, dry-skinned man, personally. The talk was pleasant, but that did not matter so much. It was the gracious manner, the fine contact, that was all. They talked a long while together, Brangwen flushing like a girl when the other did not understand his idiom. Then they said good night and shook hands. Again the foreigner bowed and repeated his good night. Good night and bon voyage. Then he turned to the stairs. Brangwen went up to his room and lay staring out at the stars of the summer night, his whole being in a whirl. What was it all? 
there was a life so different from what he knew it. What was there outside his knowledge? How much? What was this that he had touched? What was he in this new influence? What did everything mean? Where was life? In that which he knew or all outside him? He fell asleep, and in the morning had ridden away before any other visitors were awake. He shrank from seeing any of them again in the morning. His mind was one big excitement. The girl and the foreigner, he knew neither of their names. Yet they had set fire to the homestead of his nature, and he would be burned out of cover. Of the two experiences, perhaps meeting with the foreigner was the more significant. But the girl... He had not settled about the girl. He did not know. He had to leave it there, as it was. He could not sum up his experiences. The result of these encounters was that he dreamed day and night, absorbedly, of a voluptuous woman and of the meeting with a small, withered foreigner of ancient breeding. No sooner was his mind free, no sooner had he left his own companions, then he began to imagine an intimacy with fine-textured, subtle-mannered people, such as the foreigner at Matlock, and amidst this subtle intimacy was always the satisfaction of a voluptuous woman. He went about absorbed in the interest and the actuality of this dream. His eyes glowed. He walked with his head up, full of the exquisite pleasure of aristocratic subtlety and grace, tormented with a desire for the girl. Then gradually the glow began to fade, and the cold material of his customary life to show through. He resented it. Was he cheated in his illusion? He balked the mean enclosure of reality, stood stubbornly like a bull at a gate, refusing to re-enter the well-known round of his own life. He drank more than usual to keep up the glow, but it faded more and more for all that. He set his teeth at the commonplace to which he would not submit. It resolved itself starkly before him, for all that. He wanted to marry, to get settled somehow, to get out of the quandary he found himself in. But how? He felt unable to move his limbs. He had seen a little creature caught in bird lime, and the sight was a nightmare to him. He began to feel mad with the rage of impotency. He wanted something to get hold of, to pull himself out, but there was nothing. Steadfastly he looked at the young women, to find a one he could marry, but not one of them did he want. And he knew that the idea of a life among such people as the foreigner was ridiculous. Yet he dreamed of it, and stuck to his dreams, and would not have the reality of Cossethay and Ilkston. There he sat stubbornly in his corner at the Red Lion, smoking and musing and occasionally lifting his beer pot, and saying nothing, for all the world like a gorping farm laborer, as he said himself. Then a fever of restless anger came upon him. He wanted to go away, right away. He dreamed of foreign parts, but somehow he had no contact with them and it was a very strong root which held him to the marsh, to his own house and land. Then Effie got married, and he was left in the house with only Tilly, the cross-eyed woman servant who had been with them for fifteen years. 
he felt things coming to a close. All the time, he had held himself stubbornly resistant to the action of the commonplace unreality which wanted to absorb him. But now, he had to do something. He was by nature temperate. Being sensitive and emotional, his nausea prevented him from drinking too much. But, in futile anger, with the greatest of determination and apparent good humor, he began to drink in order to get drunk. Damn it, he said to himself. You must have it one road or another. You can't hitch your horse to the shadow of a gatepost. If you've got legs, you've got to rise off your backside some time or other. So he rose, and went down to Ilkston, rather awkwardly took his place among a gang of young bloods, stood drinks to the company, and discovered he could carry it off quite well. He had an idea that everybody in the room was a man after his own heart, that everything was glorious, everything was perfect. When somebody in alarm told him his coat pocket was on fire, he could only beam from a red, blissful face and say, It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. Let it be. Let it be. And he laughed with pleasure, and was rather indignant that the others should think it unnatural for his coat pocket to burn. It was the happiest and most natural thing in the world, what? He went home talking to himself and to the moon. That was very high and small, stumbling at the flashes of moonlight from the puddles at his feet, wondering, what the Hanover? Then laughing confidently to the moon, assuring her this was first class, this was. In the morning, he woke up and thought about it, and for the first time in his life, knew what it was to feel really acutely irritable in a misery of real bad temper. After bawling and snarling at Tilly, he took himself off for very shame, to be alone. And looking at the ashen fields and the putty roads, he wondered what in the name of hell he could do to get out of this prickly sense of disgust and physical repulsion. And he knew that this was the result of his glorious evening. And his stomach did not want any more brandy. He went doggedly across the fields with his terrier, and looked at everything, with a jaundiced eye. End of section two.